This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, Episode 10 with guest Anna Ott. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dario Savorova, and welcome. Anna is the architect of talent and human resources influencer with more than two decades of experience in HR. Today, Anna is a vice president of people at HV Capital, one of the leading early and growth stage funds in Europe. She works with over 70 startups, helping with organizational design, decisions around when to hire which talent, how to prepare for growth and build a healthy organization. In this episode, you will learn how the HR industry evolved in the last years, the HR tech landscape, where should you focus when upskilling yourself, and how to make timely decisions in your professional life. So with that, join me for this conversation with my guest, Anna Ott, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Anna, so great to see you. Cannot wait to learn more about the essence of human resources and dive into people operations and why should people operations be a central focal point for organizations, especially today. Thanks for having me. You have more than two decades of experience in HR, which is quite incredible. <laughs> and I have a feeling you always kept reinventing yourself and the industry. What really makes your heart beat for human resources over these years? Two decades make me sound really old, by the way. I, I don't think I am that old. It's probably also part of the answer to your question is I still feel very young and curious and driven by it because there's so many unanswered questions we still have when it comes to people at work. Everyone has worked in some capacity. Um, everyone has seen offices and jobs from the inside, various probably over the course of their careers. And I still think that there are so many things that we are not really sure about. The whole chemistry that happens between people when they are working on a shared mission, um, bad bosses that you probably have suffered from and all those things, and how we can max out the productivity and performance of people that we used to call resources, and now we call them talent. And I think despite the fact that I've been in it for so long, it feels still that there's a constant evolution of this and probably also a bit of a renaissance to HR today that when I look back at the beginnings of my career, everyone, if I were to go to a party and would tell people that I'm in HR, they would just like, okay, I'm going to grab another beer and move away. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is rude, but you're right. I'm not in marketing. It's not fancy. I'm not numbers driven. I'm not in finance. It's not like a fancy job. It's like where people ended their careers, basically. It was like a dead end. And then over the course of time, when I t tell people now that I'm doing something with HR or startups, people say, oh, I have this question. Or, oh, I was looking at another job the other day. Can you help me? And I wouldn't say that I'm a person to talk to at any party, but I think that people are thinking about jobs more thoroughly than they did and the whole things that are um, ajar to this. So I think this is it's interesting to follow this. What got you so interested in HR? I think the standard answer from any HR person you will meet is accidentally we happen to end up in HR. I've met few people over the course of my career who actually were focusing on career. I mean, obviously in hindsight, it was always a clear path and we always wanted to do nothing but this. But for me, it was really accidental because when I finished high school, I was fairly young because I had started very early and I had no plan like most people what to do. And I remember I frantically 
signed up and um, applied for internships in my area um, with the plan to just max out on money. So I applied for all the corporates because I wanted to go abroad and save up some money. And I, this was the times when people would still send in applications on paper, by the way. And obviously job ads were outdated, but I happened to apply for a job ad, job ad that was both outdated, but also open again. And I ended up at Bertelsmann in the HR department um, with all those large uh, folders and everything was still just very pen and paper. And I just happened to like it because I happened to like my boss. I still thank her, Nicolai, if you hear this, because she made me see that HR is really fun. And then she transitioned into a startup. And this is when I ended up in startups. So basically started in startups because she said one day after like four weeks into the internship, she said, look, I have a good or bad news for you. Bad news is I'm leaving. Good news can come with me. If you want to, I'm just going to the other side of the street. There's this container park where they're doing a startup. It's, it's called Lycos. Do you want to join? I said, okay, I'm tagging along. This is fun. Just I don't have any other plans. I'm just 18. And then I spent a whole year in a company that had just IPO'd. My parents were afraid, I think, panicking, because they, back then you called it new economy and no one really was sure what it is. The internet and all those things. It sounds, I sound so old now. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. I loved it. I loved everything about it because I had friends at work. We partied, we worked hard. Uh, everything was new every day in and out. And I learned everything from hiring a lot of people and um, acquiring companies across Europe and growing a company tenfold every every month, it felt at least, to the phase when we had to lay off people for the first time, which ended my year there. Not because I was laid off, because I had signed up for university to do some proper education, but this is where the last bit of my work there was letting go of people, offboarding. So this year was a whole decade of experience pumped into 12 Lucky months. Lucky you. Yeah, I got hooked. So obviously I'm still here, still sticking around with the startups in HR. I did do other jobs in between, but somehow I'm always drawn back to this. In essence, what is human resources and what people misunderstand? Oh, everything and everything. Um... Yeah, and exactly. And I'm so yeah. curious because it's always misconceptions about it. Yeah, I would. I sometimes think it's not a function per se, as in it's a core part of what an organization is made up. There's product, there's cash and finances, and there's people. Probably above all, these are the three pillars that you need to build up something. But we kind of try to to put everything that is related to people into an, a department, though with the other of these three, we don't. As in product is split between product and tech, and then there's also sales, and then there's people in charge of revenue and spending money, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I think with HR, we kind of isolate this topic, although every person that you have as a colleague is a human being. So I think it's, it's a bit probably outdated to just try to put it into a department. But yet what the function is about ultimately is making sure that you have the right people at the right time in the right role so everyone can thrive. Um, ultimately, that's the essence, but nothing more than that. And also for people who obviously, hopefully in startups specifically, they want to evolve in their roles and grow their careers. You want to make sure that there is a fit to what they expect of their jobs and vice versa at all times, to the extent that sometimes people want to leave, which is also fair. Um, I think it's always a journey. A job is a journey where you're going from one destination to another. Probably you don't know when you sign up where you will end up with, but, which is part of the, the fun of it. But it's never finite. It's not like forever. We are obviously past the time in specific startups where people jo start a job 
from here on onwards to the retirement and the horizon there, but you just want to be part of it um, for a time. And HR sh should manage this. Um, and it sounds so simple, but when we all know that the complexity of humans is not, is not reducing, it's probably more increasing because jobs are awfully complex and there's roles invented and job titles and markets and business models and everything is just so new that HR has to keep up with those developments at all times too. And this makes it really fun for people like me who always want to see something new, but also at the same time a bit stressful because you always need to figure out, okay, what's this role specifically? What are the requirements needed to do this job? And how does a person look like who can be successful in this role? It's hard because there's so many unanswered questions. If you go to hiring managers, they won't know either. They just like dump a job title on your desk and say, can you find me a chief growth officer? And then what's that? Yeah, look it up. Wow, thanks. <laughs> okay, let me just Google that for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there comes the second stage, which is attracting that person, really, really selling that position, really making it interesting to those very unique multidisciplinary people. Yeah. I think that's a complex part of it as well. Yeah, if you want to visualize the perfect HR person, and I don't think that there's just one, but part of the job is if, or for people who want to go into or transition into HR probably, there is a good amount of sales in it or the capacity to matchmake and to, it's like the, the Jane Austen part of it is probably to figure out who would be a good fit to whom ultimately we match people to people. We obviously match people to org charts, but we also match them to their managers, their colleagues, their, their bosses of some sorts. And you need to have a feeling for who would be like on a chemistry level would work with someone on top of obviously skills, which is somewhat harder to assess. And you need to sell it to them. You need to sell that to people who are high in demand, who are not looking desperately for jobs, who somehow see the risk of a startup too, because it's not, not all happy, happy, happy days. And you want to make sure that you don't oversell. I think one of my helpful parts in my career was that I've been in executive search for a couple of years, where it's all about this, where you, you cold call a person and tell them, look, I found your dream job. You didn't know you were looking for one. And you didn't, you probably most likely don't know about this company, but let me pitch this to you. And if you've done this for a sufficient amount of time, it's really helpful to figure out who's interested in what and what might be their concerns, what might be their questions. Ultimately, I think that everyone has like probably a range of 10 to 12 criteria upon which they decide for a job. And you need to figure out what's interesting for them. So I think to some extent, it is a sales job without overselling because you want to make sure that people stay happily in their jobs for a set, a specific time at least. And if we look from that macro perspective, how has HR changed in the past years as you've seen it? There are some milestones of evolution. You can look it up when you look at anyone's HR library who has been an HR leader. There's, I think one of the first things that I stumbled upon early in my career was Dave Ulrich's HR business partner idea. We should be the change agent and whatnot. And this gave us a bit of a, an ego boost and confidence into, oh, we should be at the big table and we should do the business talk and stuff like this. And I think that this is the first landmark of where HR kind of changed their self-perception to just managing stuff, to be part of the negotiation and the discussion and the strategy, if you may. And then I think the, the other part was when we figured out that talent is in demand and we need to reach out to them. You can't just sit at your desk, post and pray and wait for people to 
to send you their applications. You need to go to the internet, which is for some people still new, but I think probably that's a, that has been around for 10 years where you have social networks and you reach out to people. And this has become some sort of science, actually. There's a full-time profession for a reason, actively sourcing people. And now I think that we have figured out, and specifically, we could be, if we wanted to, grateful for the pandemic, the lockdown, and all those things, because we have figured out that HR has a more broader responsibility to take care of people with their fullest them. As in, we have looked at mental health last year. We have reached out to people who were suffering. We have figured out what we need to do to make them okay, um, not stressed out, because you can have a burnout when you're at home too. You don't need to be at work to have a burnout. You don't need to be at work to be frustrated. And I think this, for some HR people, created a different layer where usually they wouldn't touch those topics with a colleague or an employee, as in, are you really well? You wouldn't ask that question. That was a bit like intrusive, but now you do. And it probably feels go good to ask that question because most of the HR people I know have signed up because they want to take care of people to some extent. For And everyone has a specific definition of what this means, but I think people want to know that people are okay with the jobs that they gave them. And I, th I think HR to some extent is mitigating that. And where over this years you've seen maybe a very slow progress or no progress at all? It's a hard one because it so much depends on the capacity and the self-perception of the HR leader. There's some HR people, I can tell you what I, kind of HR people I I love, adore and look up to. Um, I think those are the ones that look at the whole business, which sounds so generic, but I think it's true. It, you need to foresee what probably the organization doesn't foresee, as in what's the organizational, specifically in startups, what's the organizational design that we need to build now that will take us into the, onto the next stage? How should we think about performance and performance management? Um, how should we think about culture? What's a healthy culture for us? What's our stand to society's topics like diversity and inclusion? And I think all those questions that probably no one asks, if an HR leader is great, is the one that asks these questions. It's not necessarily the one that has the answers, but who dares to ask questions that are bigger than someone needs to fill up a role in this company and perform and get paid. The meta topics, the broader topics, because this will ultimately define if your company will evolve and thrive and you'll be successful or not. And this is so, so true in startups um, because a company that is a startup will look different every six to 12 months. And someone needs to manage that constant evolution. I don't want to call it change agent because that's so old school, but I think it's about managing the next evolutionary stage is what HR is mostly about. And I think people who do this and take ownership for this part of that job, which is fuzzy because you don't know really, those are the ones that I like. Those who just sit back and do what other people tell them, which would be the other side of that spectrum, are the ones who are okay for specific companies, but probably not for startups. Anna, you're advisor to various HR tech companies all over Europe. There was a quote from you that I read, uh, startups can rethink work when building an organization from scratch. It's a huge opportunity to understand highly effective workplaces and how we should manage talent. Is this the reason why you're an advisor and angel investor to such a large number of startups? So you have to know that I did this before I started working at HV Capital, which is about a year ago, because I don't have any time for this anymore, unfortunately. But I still keep up with the startups that I've worked with for the time before. 
And it's true. I love the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and HR. It's it's a fun intersection because most of the HR tech founders I worked with were no HR leaders before they did this. So they look at it totally differently with very fresh eyes and ears. And I like this um, because they think about how can technology do good at work and how can it help? How can it take out the the complexity? How can it bring ease? How can it bring convenience? How can it bring clarity, transparency and, and stuff? So there's some great models that where you see a lot of interesting HR tech stuff. There's some HR tech stuff that is probably a bit less exciting because it's just trying to digitize something that has happened, which is true for all business models in, in tech. But to answer this question, I love just being part of a conversation with someone is inventing stuff. I'm not an inventor myself. I've never, I've never been a, an entrepreneur, but I'm obviously drawn to them because the, the moment where you stand in front of a, a whiteboard with a bunch of post-its and Sharpies and you think about stuff and reinventing it. And it's like the, when you watch those beautiful minds make up processes, products and services and markets, it's just tremendously exciting. As you mentioned, I believe it's almost one year anniversary that you are at uh, HV Capital, which is an early stage fund in Europe, and you are vice president of people. In your current role, uh, you aim to help founders build talent-centric organizations. Could you tell me more about uh, your role and also HV Capital? Also oh, to this, we are also now into growth investments, not only early stage, we have evolved last year, which is also new. So I came into the fund at the firm at a momentum where they were about to launch fund number eight. So funnily, HV Capital has been around for as long as I've been around two decades now. They used to be called Hotspring Ventures. We rebranded last year and there was a lot of new things just last year. So I joined the first talent partner to the firm. They had never had someone like me And I can describe my role in a second, but this is where the new fund, the new fund strategy, the rebranding, many more people who joined the organization, we're more than 40 people now, which is super exciting. So I think from a momentum perspective, it was a perfect timing, despite the lockdown, because I onboarded myself virtually and all those shenanigans, but it was okay. So what's my role? You need to know that we are probably sitting on top of 70-something portfolio companies. This would be startups on any stage level from early to late. With some, we have a very close relationship because we are the majority shareholders at, like from a venture capital perspective, we are very, very eager to, to be close to them. And for some, they have kind of farced out a bit more, I'd say. Anyhow, my role would be that I'm the go-to person for all HR issues. And I deliberately make this a very broad pattern where I tell new startups when they join the portfolio that to talk to me anything people anything numbers go to the investment manager who's in charge of you but anything people come to me so you're one person for over 70 startups i know <laughs> good part is how do i help is so I'm, technically i'm an advisor um, for compliance reasons this is all I, i can do also from capacity standpoint i can't do anything but this but what it means is that i'm I have like five jobs probably in a day. So some startups call me, well, the founders call me because they don't have HR people yet because they're small organizations. They call me because they think about how they should think about HR as in, oh, we need to have these key hires. How do I go about it? What is What does a great CMO look like? How do I find this? So tactics about key hire, staffing, C-level. We have at all times 20 to 25 C-level searches across the portfolio that I kind of orchestrate. So this is one part of my job. The other one is I'll be the go-to person for HR people who just want to vent 
and rant. And this happened specifically last year where they just said, can I just call you and tell you how stressed I am and how hard this is and the whole layoffs and stuff. And yes, I'm also that person. I'm also the person that helps people migrate from one to another startup within our portfolio, where they know, okay, this is where my journey ends here, but what other journeys do you have? So I'm kind of a career advisor to them too. And then obviously there's all those bigger topics that how do you tackle diversity, for example? How do you tackle organizational design, salary benchmarking, and other kind of data points? How much ASAP should I give my CTO? Is 0.5 enough, which is a question that probably... A lot of people ask me, but I don't know if I ever have a good enough answer because I don't know if that's a good answer to ask, a question to ask, honestly. But yes, you can ask those questions too. I always tell the founders when they join that you'd rather ask me two more questions than one that you don't ask. Um, Because as much as I probably won't be able to answer them all, it's good for me to just know where you are at. Because sometimes my advice also comes in just connecting them bilateral with a portfolio of that size. And this spans... 15,000 people, you can be assured that while we speak, there's someone who has the same question at this point. So why don't I connect you? It's like little self-help groups. I always tell them what works in AA always works in startups in HR too. So just talk to each other and help yourself out. I don't need to be the primus inter pares who knows everything and has the best knowledge. Sometimes the knowledge is so tremendously helpful in the portfolio. You just need to dig it up. What types of mistakes do you see startups and companies are doing again and again when it comes to human resources and people operations? Oh, there's a lot. I think laziness or (laughs) thinking that you're smart because you figured out that you need a CTO the same day you found one because you just hire the first one that falls off a tree. As in, oh, yeah, found the problem, solved the problem, check, let's move on, which is an attitude that startups need to some extent, but not with people. Don't just hire the first one. Don't hire the ex-boyfriend of your ex-girlfriend's roommate who just happens to have been at the same university that you have. And this is a tremendously great fit because it's just available, right? So be thorough about recruiting. Really look at what is the level of and the caliber of experience you're looking for. As said, how does a good CMO look like compared to a less good? For the stage you're on, there is no blueprint, but there is... As said, the specific kind of profile or talent you need at a specific kind of problem. So I think with with the hiring advice, I always tell founders that they should think hard and long about the problem. And they should compare it to product management. You don't go over to your developer and just tell them, I want this feature. You don't do this. There is a specific process for a reason to this. And try to utilize this also for hiring. So start with a scorecard, not with a job ad. Don't just download a job template from Workable. I know all Workable templates because they get sent to me as in, oh, we need a 250 grand salary employee and here's a Workable template as in, oh, lazy people. Don't do this. (laughs) If you spend money, think about how you spend it. Look at what the job entails and don't don't cling to a title. Just think about what the, the milestone of this person is, what the requirements really are, what is really important for them to come with. What will they learn? So the scorecard is, I think, the part that is skipped too often, which leads to hires that are not a fit and not great. And then worst cases, you just figure it out too late because you also, worst case, have probably not monitored someone during their probation period of the first six months. So you end up with someone in your organization who's just not a fit and you realize it a year later only. 
and you've wasted a year of, of time where you could have had someone else. So I always try to trigger the FOMO of talent with founders as in think about the fact that there's someone out there that you could probably find on LinkedIn that will be the perfect hire for this one. But you haven't found that person yet because you haven't really looked for it. So do this. I think the first part of that household part where you look at how do I how do I think about a role? Where do I find those people and those things? Pre-interview is when you do that part right, you mostly end up with good hires. If you skip that and you're just being lazy, that's never a good idea. And I would assume if this is not followed, then we are running into a problem of uh, high turnover rates. Mm. And I'm trying to understand why people leave, if we don't speak of startups, but we speak of successful growth companies, why people leave those. I can probably answer this just very personally. Why did I leave jobs? And I think this might be true for a lot of other people out there. It doesn't happen overnight. You have a feeling, it's like within a bad relationship, it's probably the same. You feel that you're not just a good fit. You don't feel that you belong or you're not welcome. That's probably one reason. Or the other reason being that you're bored. It's not exciting. Or it's just very stressful. Someone is probably not treating you the way you need or want to be treated. It's one of those reasons mostly that you feel it's not a fit. And then you try to ignore this for a while. You try to probably be better and change things and tweak here and there or talk to your boss or try to get feedback or read up things at night in order to be better the next day. Ultimately, you mostly know this is off and then you just wait for a reason to leave. When people end jobs, they always come up with various reasons. And if they come up with a lot of reasons, you know that there's none of those. Like as in... There's mostly one reason, as in, I don't like you. It's fair to say to your boss, I don't like working with you. It's just stressing me out. We don't, we are not, the chemistry is bad. It's fine to say this. Obviously, I'm speaking from a perspective where people can choose and pick jobs. Being aware that there are some people who just need to hold on to jobs for a lot of reasons, which are stressful too. But if you were to have the choice, whether you want to stick with a job that doesn't feel right, there's this... You can look it up. There's this Monday feeling, which is a theme. The Sunday evening feeling when you look at the Monday coming up and you know that I don't want to go there. I mean, we don't go there, but you don't want to open up your laptop tomorrow morning and start where you ended up on Friday. If this is bad for too long in a row, you need to make a change. And sometimes you don't have these many possibilities within an organization to change. You could probably move departments or make other lateral moves or whatever, but most of the time you just say, okay, I just want a fresh start, reinvent myself also somewhere else, a clean slate. So it's fair. And I don't think this is specifically true for late or early stage companies. There is a pattern though that you can find that at some point, probably above 150 FTE, companies just feel so different to the earlier days that a lot of early employees don't want to be there anymore. And it's fair because it's just a different kind of organization, different kind of processes and structures and stuff like this that some people just haven't signed up for. In 2018, you wrote that the label HR tech is not yet a sexy one in spite of the VC money. What does today look like? Does HR tech attract VC money these days, especially since you joined? I don't know the specific date of when this changed from 
the conversations I had about HR tech because I remember the time where I made that statement, which was when when I explored HR tech for real. It's probably when I was still at Deutsche Telekom at Hubraum, and I explored HR tech because I've, I kind of stumbled upon it. And I thought, okay, there's so much cool stuff out there, so many cool tools and companies that I could I could use. And I think that there was the era before that, and then specifically in Germany, there was the era when everyone knew Personio and Hanno Renner, who's like the poster child of HR tech in Germany. And I think he has heard this so many times also from me that he's probably not happy about this, but it's true. He, for the better, he changed the face of the industry, like quite literally, because there was the era before, the era before, and there is the what we are in now, because we have seen that you can grow a company domestically. You can grow an HR tech company to be cool, sexy, interesting, and a success. And so far, they have done nothing but this. They are a success story. So this means that other people tag along. I don't think that founders are naturally drawn to these things, but I think that there's some part of founders who look at the market and say, oh, what's sexy out there? What's cool? Well, for those, sometimes it's also a bit of a lifestyle choice, but where they just see business models and founders and entrepreneurs they admire and they want to step into their shoes. So this was when there was more HR tech after after the first announcement of Personio's success and, and fundraise and stuff. So people thought, okay, I can do this too. It's interesting. So yeah, there was a trend. And I, th- I think it's still ongoing. And I guess that also the last year showed that there's so many answered, unanswered questions. So as I said, mental health, remote work, well-being at work, benefits, um, home office setups even, managing from a distance. There were new problems that have surfaced where people are eager to find solutions to now, which is super exciting. But does HR tech is capable to really address complexity of human interaction and human beings? Good question to ask. I think maybe not, because most the ones that I've seen, they look at very isolated parts of these problems, right? You want to fix a puzzle piece. Because I said, the the overarching picture is really hard to see sometimes. So there's one company that I looked at the other day that I'm following because they're looking at building career frameworks and progression letters, which is a, seems to be a super small puzzle piece. But then you see that it's also intertwined. So another answer to your question would be that I look at HR from being like a it's like a clockwork where you have so many small cog wheels. And I think if you fix one, you're also touching others. So my ambition should not be as a founder to solve the whole thing because every company's clockwork looks different too. But if you're aware of the cog wheels around you and you know which to tweak and turn, you can make a difference to the whole picture. That's true. So start with a small one, but be aware of the other ones that you're interfering with because that's that's how you make a change. If you're just looking at your little island you're on, if you just want to fix payroll, okay, do this. But payroll and compensation benefits, for example, is such a big issue because it touches so much more than just how much money you get every by the end of the month. And is there anything particular that you would say if a company today doesn't have this HR tech service or product, they're way far behind and extremely old-fashioned? in their operational way? I think by this time, all companies, and I've worked a lot with SMEBs and corporates too in the last years, everyone has some sort of HR tech on that spectrum. Some of them are a bit more lagging, probably some are ahead of a curve and some are cutting edge or bleeding edge, whatever 
If you want to have a benchmark of what's possible in terms of making sure that you see HR very holistically, also with the support of tech, you could probably look at companies like SAP. I think from afar, they should have, I don't know, 95% of what's possible to do for an employee. So that's your North Star. And if you do have a bit of this, you're also already good. If a startup, for example, is managing HR without a dedicated tool, that's when my GDPR radar is like kind of tilting, right? So you should have some tools in place. You don't need too many, though. It's really hard to orchestrate them because most of the time they're not talking to each other. We have at least the basic stack would be that you have an ATS, like an applicant tracking system, and an HRIS where you manage basically all your employees. Those two should be talking to each other. Then you don't need too many on top. There is a really great article for anyone who wants to dive into that that I can recommend by a friend of mine, Thomas Otter, who wrote an article about the sunflower and the daisy. As in to compare it, if you have a large core in the middle and small tools that you add on it, or if you choose to have a smaller core, but very massive and standalone, even features cling to it. So I think you need to design because it on both purpose. both are not possible. No, it's either or. You need to choose. This is what it's about. You need to make a deliberate choice on how you want to set up your tech stack as an HR department over time. You just can't add them to, on top of each other because then you end up with a big fat mess. It's not helpful. A career is like building a car while driving it at full speed, I read in one of your blogs. Hmm. What are common misconceptions people make when attempting to upskill themselves? For me, it was always true that I could never learn stuff that I'm not interested in. I will never be good at stuff that I don't care about. But shouldn't we work on our weaknesses? I don't think that this is something we should focus on. You can ask Adam Grant about this, whether you have actually strengths and weaknesses or whether you should just focus on the strength you have and increase the muscles that you are equipped with naturally. I think it's the easier part to be better at what you're already good at and follow those things that you are curious about to the extent that you probably end being curious about something and find something else. I myself change those curiosities like other people's wardrobes, but because I, I now I'm excited about diversity, I might be excited about something else in a year. Either or, I think follow your gut feel of what, what draws your attention, what sparks your joy. I would never, for example, be, and all my colleagues know this, because I would never be really amazing at Excel, for example. Number crunching, my husband knows that I can not even memorize his phone number, and we've been married for a very long time, fortunately, but <laughs> numbers and me and all friends, they will never be. I can try my best to be better, but I will never be good. What I will be good at is anything that I have built up muscle for in the past. So I think I it's fair to say that I'm good with judging people. And why is this? Because the reference points I do this upon are very extensive. I've been probably interviewing probably 10,000 people over the course of my career. So it's easier for me to put people in boxes and and rate them or rank them on a scale because I know that this person is a bit better in this than the other one that I met and that person is a bit stronger in that, yada, yada, yada. So my N upon which I reference is, is massive. So this is where I'm good. And the more I do this, the better I get at it. This is like an exponential skill you can build. And there's others that are ajar, but I said, 
when you want to upskill yourself, follow what interests you. Don't force yourself to learn things that you dislike. It just won't happen. I think it, it, you can be better at something, but will you ultimately be good to the extent that you like it? I'm like the the best worst singer on planet Earth. I love to sing, but I don't understand why people are listening to this podcast 40 minutes into our conversation still to hear my voice. <laughs> but I'm excited to change the seats with you and interview you this mm. time. So that's exciting. <laughs> it makes me nervous all the time, by the way. <laughs> and where should one really focus, um, again, speaking of upskilling, maybe what is relevant today in our current world situation? If we find that kind of you know, specification of upskilling and career growth? Zooming into startups probably is where I can best answer this question from the bubble I live in, so to speak. I think pattern finding is an important skill. I don't know how you can learn this, but I think you can, data synthesis and analysis is really an important skill across functions. So where having this skill would always be beneficial to whatever role you want to have making sense of numbers and data, knowing how to come up with interesting data points and what you learn from them, which is an abstract, probably creative and highly analytical skill that if you know to be good at those things, go and, and build up those skills because people will ask you to work for, for money to utilize those skills. And on top of this, the abstract part of the, the world we live in making sense of those things, as in what's interesting for the society, what drives the conversation, where does sustainability, for example, is just a very obvious thing. If you know about those things on a broader picture, you will probably be a very qualified person to talk to when it comes to judging business models or strategies for a company, because we know these things to be way more important um, when it comes to decision making. These are things that like very abstract are probably important. In if you want to zoom into functions that that I see in our portfolio, we have at all times, I think more than a thousand two hundred jobs open. You can find them on our job board. Sales is an evergreen, selling to people and from a business development perspective also making sure that you sell B2B is really hard. That's a skill that is always in demand. Marketing is, is a good one and has followed in the last years a lot of different evolutions. And if this is your theme, you will probably be, be good at becoming an expert at one of those parts. And product always will never go away. Tech will never go away. There's some core functions that if you, if you build up skills there, that's great. Does everyone in finance need to learn how to code? I don't know. It's probably helpful. It doesn't hurt. If you like numbers, go for it. And I think lastly, I'd love for everyone to have a better understanding of emotional intelligence and skills and empathy to just understand the human behind the person better. We would all be better off if people would read more about those things. These are some really great insights. Thank you, Anna. As we are slowly coming to the end of uh, our conversation, I would like to tackle one more topic, which is currency is a time. And in one of your articles, you wrote, our currency is the time we offer to solve problems and puzzles and develop new things and approaches. How do you make the best of your time and optimize your days? 
I don't. If I, I would love to say that I'm so good. I do yoga every day. I eat <laughs> avocados twice a day. And no, I hate avocados for everyone who was always interested in knowing this <laughs> or never. I don't think that I'm really good at this day optimization. I'd love to be better at it. And I tackle probably also on the back of the pandemic. I tackle every day, day by day. I'm an early bird, which means that I rise early and I'm starting ahead of other people in my organization, which gives me time to clear my inbox. I have, in phases of my career, played around with like deep work and focused time things and diving into specific moments and focusing my time. Sometimes this is super helpful, but now my situation, like most people, specifically those who have kids, is my days just chop up. I have zero control of my time. I'm totally stressed out all the time because there's other people asking for my attention. So I think the good part, though, is that I, as I age, and I do, I'm going to turn 40 this year. So I feel that the wisdom that comes with it is that I'm a bit more at ease with not having closure at the end of the day. So I think that when I was 20, I'd probably always be at night and do pull all-nighters and basically to do what, what other people asked me to do. And I think today I'm okay with not finishing up every piece of my work or managing my time better. So what would be my ultimate advice is understand that you can't solve it all and be okay. Go find peace with not ticking off every item of your to-do list every day. It's, it's, it also what makes you human. And what would you recommend to our listeners? How should they treat them time when it comes to their professional paths? I met a person once who reverse planned his whole life. He basically looked back at, he looked at his life from, okay, there's probably 80 something years that I have, and I want to end my life with having grandchildren. So I should have a wife and have children at a specific age. And he kind of reverse engineered this completely. So he knew that he wanted to marry when he was 20 and yada, yada, yada. So aside from a personal planning, I think, look at your career as in there's a limited amount of years you can dedicate your life to a work, to work and your career and jobs. And if you can, and I said, I know not everyone can, or you can't all the time, but if you can, be really thorough about the choices. Because otherwise you will waste two or three good years in a job that you dislike or in a company that doesn't treat you well or in an organization that you don't feel you belong. Because there's not an unlimited amount of years you can do this. And it doesn't mean that you plan ahead. It just means that you be very cautious on what to sign up for or even end it if, when it doesn't feel good. I wish I'd done this early in my career too, because I said, as I said, I, I spent eight years of my life in executive search and I think three would have been totally sufficient because at some point it got so repetitive and I didn't learn more, though I spent more years in it. And I think there's some jobs that are like this, where you, where more years won't make you better. There's some jobs that make you better over time, but there's some that don't, that feel just like a dead end. So be wary that you only have a specific amount of jobs that you can have in your life. Think about it as in jobs and not in roles or organizations. You will probably be able to master your career way more effectively and deliberately than, than I did 20 years ago. I think it's really good to take the time after this episode and uh, for those who are hearing us to reflect a little bit on this and maybe just 
visualize their life, their path. Yeah, I have a very pragmatic tip for this. And paradoxically and ironically, this this might include Excel if you may, or might include a piece of paper if you want to, if you're good at uh, calculating. What I would advise people to do is list all the things that are important for you in your career, as in, and I said, it's probably 10 to 12 things, like how much time you want to travel for work or how much time you want to be at work and how much money you want to make and how important the brand of the employer is to you, whatever, whatever your list is, and then rank them by how important they, weigh them, how important they are to you. And then whenever you look at a job choice, try to figure out how, how good they are on this criteria individually and how this adds up. Because sometimes we look at jobs from a very isolated decision point. We look at it, will it pay me more money? Or is the title fancier, the responsibility bigger? But honestly, there's so much more to a job that makes you feel great. I said the, the Sunday evening feeling is, is composed of more than one thing. Because on Sunday evening, you literally don't care about how much money you make if the job really sucks. And then you need to dig into this. So make a mental or physical list of the things that are important that matter to you. When at some point we will have dinner conversations again, you go to someone that is your friend and they ask about your new job. Will you say with pride what your new job is? What's the mission? Can you articulate the mission you're on or the mission of the company you're on? that you have just joined, is this important to you, for example? For some people, it's not, and it's okay to be not important. But if it's important, be crystal clear that this is something that you should judge every job upon. Love it. Thank you. And a question I really love asking all my guests is, um, Anna, who is a woman who would you define as an author of her own achievements? My mom. I love my mom for a lot of reasons, and I respect her the more I age. I started to understand my mom fully when I became a mother. And I don't know how she did this. I really don't know because I have a sister who's just slightly older than me and she was working full time and she was also an entrepreneur of some sort. So I, I have zero clue how her life looked when I was a toddler. But I have the fullest and utmost respect for, for what she did because she made me, but she also gave me a childhood that made me me. So when people ask me why I am, for example, confident and all those things, it's because of my mom. She injected all these things in me. So I think she's not my role model in that extent. It's just that I admire her and I'm very, very grateful for everything she did. And I think she was the author of her achievement as she was to, to me. Anna, thank you so much for stopping by and coming to the studio and sharing your insights. We have spoke about HR tech. We spoke about what are you working at HV Capital, how you started, what, what, why are you in HR and people operations? And I think this really was an eye-opener and a conversation that brought so many insights and uh, also your personal perspective on things. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon. <laughs>